Did you ever come across the concept of like weed is a gateway drug? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Weed is a gateway drug. You do weed, you're going to be on heroin. That's Mary Pryor. She's the co-founder of a cannabis startup and an advocate for racial equity within the cannabis industry. But Mary wasn't always so weed positive. Growing up in the 90s, she heard the weed is bad message, well, everywhere, especially in anti-drug PSAs on TV. This is your brain on drugs with the fried eggs. Classic. (laughs) Ah, yes. A man with aggressive gym teacher energy holds up an egg. This is your brain. Points to a frying pan. This is drugs. And then cracks the egg into the hot pan. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? According to these PSAs, weed had a laundry list of negative consequences. Weed also led to not graduating school, not having a job. That stuff hurts. Stop you from living up to your potential. Looking ugly, your friends not wanting to hang out with you. This is the way it's been since she started smoking pot. She's all lazy and boring. You name it. I saw a lot of these ads growing up, too. I heard the same messages from TV, from school, from parents. And I can assure you, they did not work on me. But it did get me wondering, where did this message come from? Where did it all start? The Marijuana Tax Act. Marijuana Tax Act. Marijuana Tax Act. Marijuana Tax Act. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. 85 years ago this week, on August 2nd, 1937, Congress passed the Marijuana Tax Act, effectively making weed illegal in the U.S. But this one tax act was preceded by a campaign to paint cannabis as a devil drug, a scourge on America's social fabric. Today, we'll explore how this story came to be and the fears that it raised. Fears that continue to shape how we talk about the cannabis plant to this day. So take a puff with me. And I'll catch you up after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In the 1910s, a revolution was being waged in Mexico. The working classes were tired of the wealthy ruling elites, a tale as old as time. 
and they found a hero in Pancho Villa. He was a revolutionary general, a Robin Hood-like figure. He and a group of 40 or so outlaws would get in gunfights with Texas Rangers. It said between battles, some of his guerrillas had a particular pastime. They liked to smoke a specific plant. The legend of Pancho Villa and his smoking outlaws spread across Mexico and the U.S. Eventually, people started singing a song. La Cucaracha is a Mexican folk song. One version is about a foot soldier who can't function without smoking up this cheap intoxicant. You probably know it by its Spanish name, marijuana. And you know, la cucaracha translates to cockroach. As in, roach? Hello? See these dots? See how I'm connecting them? It's around this time that weed smoking started popping up in the U.S. Mainly it's from the migration of uh, Mexicans fleeing the Civil War. People were fleeing the violence. People were seeking a better economic situation. This is Martin Lee, author of Smoke Signals, A Social History of Marijuana. He says as people moved across the border in the early 1900s, they brought over things that were important to them. They had different herbs for cooking and whatnot. They would have their jar of marijuana too, which they used for different ailments. Medical cannabis was already a thing in the States, usually in the form of tinctures. But weed smoking was unfamiliar to many Americans. And as Mexicans migrated across the U.S., they brought the practice with them. Folks smoked up up and down the Texas border, further east in Louisiana, out west in Colorado and California, and into urban centers where jobs were available, places like Kansas City and Chicago. Some state officials started taking notice of this smoking trend and the political opportunity it presented. You have the influx of Mexican-Americans into the United States where, for political reasons, some people thought to take advantage of the association with cannabis with people who who were not really Americans. You know, they were coming across the border, immigrants, aliens. Politicians claimed that marijuana would soon cross cultural lines and infect white communities. Gasp! Then, in the 1930s, the federal government set their sights on shutting down marijuana. Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. This loquacious fella is Harry Anslinger, prohibitionist and an official in the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He made it his job to tell America about the evils of drugs. Harry's background has nothing to do with science or chemistry, drugs or alcohol. This is New School Literary Studies professor Alexandra Chasen. She was researching America's criminal justice system and found Harry Anslinger right at the center of it. His background has everything to do with alcohol prohibition, bureaucracy, bureaucratic procedure. See, Anslinger cut his teeth policing alcohol during prohibition. He had a reputation as a tireless champion of American bureaucracy. But after prohibition started to falter in 1929, many American prohibitionists, like Anslinger, 
turn their sights to a different social scourge, drugs. A lot of the drugs they targeted had once been used for medical purposes. Back in the 1800s, physicians would regularly prescribe opiates like heroin and morphine. In the 1880s, cocaine was used in local anesthetics. In the 1890s, heroin was produced as a cough suppressant. Damn, talk about knocking out a cold. As time went on, though, it became understood that certain treatments could become habit-forming and problematic for society. The U.S. was seeing what some have characterized as an addiction crisis. The government began rolling out different forms of legislation for better pharmaceutical and consumer responsibility. Like the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, it required products that were classified as food or prescribed drugs to list their ingredients. Then, in 1914, regulation went a step further with the Harrison Act. Narcotics had come through the government primarily under the aegis of the Harrison Act, which was passed as a stamp act to control the distribution of mostly opiates and cocaine. The act imposed a tax on the production, importation, and distribution of narcotics. After the Harrison Act, narcotics like morphine, heroin, and cocaine were federally regulated. Weed was not. States did start regulating it, though, targeting communities that smoked it. In 1913, California outlawed recreational cannabis. About 15 years later, Louisiana officials basically made recreational weed illegal, too. At the same time, Various media outlets were publishing stories linking crime to cannabis and the Mexican migrants who smoked it. Research from the time, though, found that foreign-born people were more law-abiding than people born in the U.S. But officials cherry-picked stories about weed-smoking Mexicans committing crimes, taking the outliers and making them seem like the norm. It's giving fear-mongering. It's giving racism. It's giving moral panic. And how perfect, because this is where Harry Anslinger steps back into frame, the bureaucrat with a penchant for flowery language. A year earlier, Anslinger was made the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN. Initially, he had no real issue with cannabis, but the FBN had been created on the tails of a failing alcohol prohibition. The government wasn't going to allocate the same number of resources to a new prohibition, This ended up putting Harry in a tough spot. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was not large, did not have many agents. He did not have a lot of money. He went perpetually to ask for a bigger budget for guns that matched the guns of gangsters, for cars that matched the cars of gangsters. Professor Chasen says Anslinger also felt the pressure because the Bureau was frequently on the chopping block. Did Harry need some signal successes in order to ensure the continuation and the continued budgeting of the Bureau, yes. Anslinger needed a win, and he needed to go after an enemy to get that win. There was already a growing anti-cannabis sentiment being pushed by state leaders. So Anslinger hopped on that train. When Anslinger had that power in his hands, 
He very clearly set about to associate marijuana with Latinos and African-Americans. It seems that these smugglers were trying to raise money to stage a revolution down there. The Central American countries have been increasingly used as basis for this rocket. As a matter of fact, that's where most of our trouble comes from nowadays. Anslinger produced films condemning cannabis and warning of its unsavory associations. And he used the drug's Spanish name in smear campaigns. The weed marijuana is grown in every state in the Union. Recently, This is from the opening scene of the 1936 film Reefer Madness. It's now known as an absurd anti-cannabis propaganda film. But at the time, it told a story of how weed would turn Americans, white Americans, into manic murderers. I know what you want. You want to kill me. This film came out in the middle of the Great Depression. The economy was in a full tailspin. There was a lot of competition for a limited amount of jobs. More and more pressure was being placed on D.C. to do something about the immigrant problem. Immigrants that, by now, were closely linked to marijuana in the minds of many Americans. The next year, in 1937, Congress had hearings about what needed to be done about cannabis at the federal level. They were discussing a new tax act, the Marijuana Tax Act. It's around this time that Anslinger published one of his most sensational pieces of writing about the drug. One of my favorite pieces is Assassin of Youth, which is a piece that was published in American Magazine in 1937. The piece opens with the description of a woman dead, splattered on the sidewalk outside an apartment building in Chicago. She's gone out of a window on the fifth floor. The article immediately goes on to say, the killer was a narcotic known to America as marijuana. It is a narcotic used in the form of cigarettes and that it was as dangerous as a coiled rattlesnake. She got got by the weed. This story, and ones like it, would end up helping Anslinger codify his anti-cannabis messaging into law. Even though, and this may not come as much of a surprise, but uh... There was no such woman. There was no event like that. We'll solve this marijuana mystery after the break. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Sup, stoners. Welcome back. Before the break, we learned how migrants brought pot smoking to the U.S. during the Mexican Revolution, which got the girls mad. The girls being U.S. political leaders, naturally, and how head honcho at the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Harry Anslinger, pushed this growing anti-cannabis sentiment. And remember that explosive article he wrote, Marijuana, Assassin of Youth? 
with the pot-smoking woman and the fifth-floor window and the, ah! Well, Anslinger expert Alexandra Chasen says none of that happened. Anslinger was an office guy. So the propaganda is stuff that he wrote while sitting in Washington. It's not reportage. Not reportage. In other words, he totally fabricated this scenario. Assassin of Youth goes on to list other tall tales. One where a quiet young man took an axe and murdered his whole family after lighting up. There was the man who assaulted a young girl because of his reefer addiction. It goes on and on. Anslinger crafts these narratives about hot tamale peddlers, implying that they're notorious drug dealers. He doesn't say it explicitly, but we can all guess who he's implicating there. And he implicates other racial minorities in Assassin of Youth, too. He implies that Black migrants brought their pot-smoking north to New York, that the jazz musicians of the Harlem Renaissance used the drug to help them play their, quote, hot music, and that it helped them play notes with a furious speed that no sober person could possibly imitate. Right, because stoners are notorious for their speed? His ideas were informed by a kind of mythology. It confirmed his sense that immigrant groups and racial social groups were responsible for the destruction of the fabric of an imagined intact white American society. This flurry of tall tales from Anslinger They're all being published around the same time that Congress was meeting for Anslinger's Marijuana Tax Act. Marijuana, Assassin of Youth, is now widely considered a piece of anti-cannabis propaganda. A timely piece of propaganda. In the spring of 37, Anslinger strutted through the halls of Congress multiple times, delivering statements, advocating for the tax on cannabis. The American Medical Association, though, according to weed historian Martin Lee, their legislative council made a very different appeal. The AMA representative at these hearings actually opposed the passage of this act. One of the reasons they said is that we believe there could be undiscovered medical uses of this and that that it has has a history of being used as a safe medicine. And we might. The vote went to a Congress that was already stretched thin. They were still dealing with the Depression and the rising threat of fascism in Europe. So Lee says they just went along with Anslinger. They just voice vote. And and it's ridiculous. Some of the congressmen didn't even know what they were voting on. Some of the comments that were made that were ultimately reported, you know, someone saying, what is this again? What did we just vote? Oh, marijuana, something, something like a narcotic. You know, they didn't even know what they were doing. The Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 was passed on August 2nd it pretty much gave the federal government full control over weed. They taxed and regulated it so heavily that it was functionally illegal. And those stories Anslinger told about black and brown boogeymen, deathly consequences, total social chaos, they've stuck around these last 85 years. And they've evolved. I mean, come on, you can't tell me your brain on drugs is a fried egg makes any more sense than the weed is making the jazz too fast, right? And these messages don't only come from the media. Maybe you even heard some of this stuff at school. 
I was a part of the D.A.R.E. program at school. I was on the board. That's Mary Pryor, the cannabis equity advocate from the top of the show. That program she participated in, D.A.R.E., or Drug Abuse Resistance Education, was especially popular in the 80s and 90s. Oh, wow. Tell me about that. I was, you know, I was definitely on the gym floor in our school uniform talking about drugs are bad. Mary's introduction to weed was charged with all these messages of its damaging effects. Until, in her young adulthood, a health scare prompted her to take a second look at cannabis. I got hit with Crohn's disease uh, about 10 years ago, and I found myself relying more on the medicine of it just to, like, get through the pain, the stomach issues, the intestinal issues, and of whatnot. Mary was taking 20 different medications for Crohn's, some to deal with the pain, others to counteract the side effects of the initial medications. It was a never-ending spiral of pain and prescriptions and more pain. I started learning about all of these different ways to just utilize the plant outside of what I learned in Catholic school, smoking weed with my friends, or what I learned working with my... Mary started researching the cannabis plant, diving deep into all its properties, how to use it to treat pain and other symptoms. She says it helped her manage her chronic illness tremendously. Mary was traveling in and out of Colorado at this time, where medical cannabis was legal. Starting in the 90s, states were doing an about-face on cannabis, legalizing it both medicinally and then recreationally. This state-by-state legislation opened up business opportunities. And Mary wanted to advocate for cannabis entrepreneurs, eliminate the stigma she learned as a kid. That's part of why she founded her company, Canaclusive. But she quickly found that even if it was legal at the state level, the lingering social stigma and federal restrictions made things especially difficult. People keep treating it like a drug. And that bleeds into banking as something that we can't access. It bleeds into capital, 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 capital. Because of federal regulations, most banks can't risk offering financial services to companies who work directly with cannabis. So many cannabis entrepreneurs turn to other sources of funding, private investors, friends and family, that kind of thing. Sources of capital that, historically, Black and brown people have a harder time getting access to. As more and more opportunities seem to pop up around this new industry, Mary is aware of these real challenges. How there's no sure footing for Black and brown entrepreneurs. And if you ask her, it ties directly back to 1937. Melanated communities, in, namely North America, were disenfranchised from understanding the value of so many things based on how the Tax Act was created and made to target, namely Black and those who are, would be considered Mexican in that time as the scapegoats. This scapegoating hasn't changed. According to the ACLU, Black people all across the country are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, even though usage rates are roughly equal between the two groups. And in general, Black and Latinx people in America are more heavily criminalized. Combined, they make up roughly one-third of the U.S. population, but make up two-thirds of all incarcerated people in the country. 
all this crazy stuff really makes it even more challenging now to get laws and policies passed that are going to be significantly aware of what racism has done to us to be able to have access in anything. We're at an interesting place with cannabis in America. It's been legalized for recreational use in 19 states. It's decriminalized or legal for medical use in a total of 37. And yet, federal restrictions continue to stunt the industry, creating sometimes insurmountable barriers of entry, limiting who can get a piece of this business. Those messages that Harry Anslinger and other prohibitionists introduced almost 100 years ago, they're still with us, even if they manifest a little differently. It's in the stigma still attached to cannabis. It's in the racial discrepancy of who now gets to profit from it and who's criminalized for using it, even when it stops being criminal. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Ramoy Phillip. Next week, we're bringing you a story from our friends over at Every Little Thing. Most people agree that the kind of first cheer was actually at a game between Rutgers and Princeton. A group of residents broke out into this cheer, which was rah, 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 sis, 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 boom, boom, boom. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producer is Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Brittany Luce, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. You can read more of Harry Anslinger's tall tales in Professor Chasen's book, Assassin of Youth, A Kaleidoscopic History of Harry J. Anslinger's War on Drugs. Special thanks to Carlene Pinto, Candace Fortin, Donnell Alexander, Damian Fagan, Professor Steve Underhill, and Summer Fox, Laura May Keown, and Leslie Nickus over at Weed Maps, where you can learn more about everything cannabis. And to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Palanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. I wish I had information when I was younger, but I was also younger. I was a kid. My top concerns were going to ice capades with my Girl Scout friends. (laughs) 